We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. And you Australians have got to figure out why it is that a country that was so much rooted in the aspiration for freedom has allowed itself to become so risk-averse, so prescriptive in the way that it conducts its affairs. And you know, how, how did it happen that a nation that used to have this pioneering spirit become almost its uh, cultural opposite in a very, very short period of time? Welcome to another water cooler conversation coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre. I'm Nick Cater. The lurch away from democratic pluralistic government towards technocratic command and control in many Western jurisdictions has been one of the most disturbing developments in the last two years. Some are content to see it as inevitable as we wage war against COVID-19. The parliamentary process and executive accountability must take a back seat while we put the experts in charge. But is there any guarantee that the experts will turn in their badges and allow normal service to resume once the pandemic is over? Or is it part of a larger retreat from democracy amid a growing fear that leaving affairs in the hands of the demos is fraught with danger? Frank Faridi brings some light to these important questions in his recent book, Democracy Under Siege, Don't Let Them Lock It Down. And Frank joins me today from Kent in the UK. Frank, welcome back to Water Cooler. Nice to be with you. Frank, you've written about the rise of democracy panic, as you call it, in recent decades that predates COVID-19. You write, outwardly, democracy panic appears as an expression of genuine concern about the future of democracy. But on close inspection, it becomes evident that its anxiety is focused on too much democracy. How so? Well, I think this has had a long tradition that goes back literally since the beginning of uh, the development of democracy. And one of the points that has always struck me as very interesting is that arguments against democracy emerged even before democracy itself came into being, uh, in the sense that there was a, a belief that you cannot trust the masses, you cannot trust ordinary people, you cannot rely on their common sense. Uh, because they are irrational, they can be manipulated, uh, demagogues will have their way with them. And what has happened is that these sentiments kind of gradually receded, uh, it appeared in the background, because as democracy moved forwards, you couldn't really say these things uh, in public. But actually, at the same time, you had this very strong anti-majoritarian sentiment. And I think what happened is that uh, uh, in the particularly last 40, 50 years, you had this growing tendency on the part of politicians and on the part of governments to outsource decision-making to expert bodies, to outsource decision-making uh, to international organizations uh, on the grounds that these were too complex to be understood by ordinary people and that experts had a much greater a, a grasp of what needed to be done than the electorate. And I think that sentiment has been more or less institutionalized. People didn't really recognize what was going on because you still have elections, you still have politicians, some who are popular, some who are not. But what people forget is that behind the scenes in general, 
more and more decisions that affect everyday lives are taken uh, uh, and, 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 and responsibility for them is assumed by non-elected experts and professionals. Yeah, I mean, when you you go through the kind of catalogue of ways in which they've attempted to bypass democracy, and we're familiar with some of these, we've discussed them before, the resort to international bodies to make decisions on behalf of a nation, handing over responsibility to experts, these sort of things. This has been going on for a long time. Is it only that we've just woken up to it with COVID, or or has it increased a pace with COVID-19? Well, I think one of the interesting things about COVID is that it has really intensified all the pre-existing social and political trends that were in play. And that what we're seeing, particularly in relation to democracy, is a very interesting development where not only democracy, but public life itself has become subordinated to the imperative of public health. And what we've seen in the last two years is a parallel process of, on the one hand, the politicization of public health, and at the same time, the medicalization of politics. And as these parallel processes kicked in, what we're seeing is that increasingly what happens in parliaments, uh, the decisions that are uh, sort of made by politicians are more or less sidelined and, and, and subjugated to the demands of, of, uh, of, of expertise and professionals. And I think what has happened is that COVID has allowed what I call uh, technocratic governance to flourish to a point that uh, is quite unprecedented in the, in the last 50, 60, 70 years. Well, one of the arguments that's used is that the world's a complex place and these are complex policy problems and ordinary people cannot be expected to get their heads around this and make the right decisions. Therefore, we have to hand things over to the people who know, the people with greater wisdom. This argument, of course, is often used about climate change too, that it's such a complex issue that people can't expect be expected to make democratic choices that are correct because they, they just don't understand the issue. I don't buy that. I don't know why, Frank, but I just find that slightly disturbing, that kind of condescending approach and not not always true because very often people do make better decisions than the experts. Yeah, I mean, it's an argument that's been used for a very, very long time. Uh, and then one of the first time it's kind of addressed quite directly is actually by the um, first important uh, Western political philosopher, Nico Machiavelli, who basically argued that uh, the wisdom of the masses is of far greater significance than the insights of the prince. Because what Machiavelli makes, the point that he makes, is that when you put together all these different heads of of ordinary people, they're they're bound through the use of common sense to come to a better uh, sort of judgment than a single or a small number of individuals. And I think that that insight about the wisdom of the masses is important because in many circumstances, for example, in the current pandemic, it's very much the case that very often people using common sense in relation to their specific circumstance are far likely to make a better judgment call than somebody sitting in Canberra, you know, hundreds of miles away, yeah. who has a very general sense of the general big picture, but is completely desensitized of what are the needs and what are the challenges facing a particular community. 
So it seems to me that that argument is really a, a self-serving argument used in order to uh, reinforce the authority uh, of a very small section of society. Yeah, and the normal parliamentary process gives chance for debate, for checks and balances to kick in, uh, gives another, people are able to give another viewpoint, put another eye on things. That always seems to me is going to guard against bad policy uh, or bad policy mistakes. You've got greater chance of of catching bad policy decisions before they do serious damage. And that, with COVID in particular, it seems to me that we've reduced the sort of decision-making circle within many governments, certainly here amongst some of the state governments, you know, almost to a sort of team of two or three. And they've made decisions which have turned out to be catastrophically wrong. And just think, well, if only those have gone through the normal process, there might have at least been a chance that we could have avoided that. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big problem that at the end of the day, the whole mechanism whereby you check and verify decisions and you have a reality check that's uh, done on the basis of lived experience uh, becomes diminished in terms of its influence. And it seems to me that one of the things that we're losing at the moment is, is a very simple distinction between what's appropriate for experts to do, which is to uh, tell us what they think on the basis of their expert knowledge and how you deal with that, which is the realm of public life and politics, where an expert has got no more authority than you and I, just because you know, sort of we're all citizens who are making decisions about our own life. And we have to keep those two things distinct. Otherwise, what happens is we both, uh, in a sense, uh, reduce you know, and devalue the role of a citizen and at the same time uh, give uh, an expert an authority that's not really deserved and, and a, an authority that they actually cannot use in an effective manner. And yet we've seen this time and time again, both in our country and in Britain, that that politicians have said they 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 preface their remarks by saying this is based on the best expert advice so not only does that give them some supposed authority but it also forecloses any idea that you can criticize it because if you're criticizing it then you you're criticizing the experts you you, you must therefore be stupid or impertinent or something it is this sort of absolute certainty and, and inability to challenge this uh, uh, these decisions that, that I think is fraught with danger. It is. And in many ways, I'm, I'm much more concerned about politicians who very willingly, you know, sort of absolve themselves of responsibility for the making of decisions by saying we're following the science. This is what science says. This is what research shows. This is what the experts say. And the more they repeat that mantra, the more what they're saying is that I'm, I got nothing to do with this. I'm just doing what they're telling me to do. And they're forgetting the fact that they are meant to be the political leaders of a, of a society, of a nation. And they ought to bear responsibility for the decisions that are carried out. Not the scientists, not the experts. They are responsible for that. And if they willingly give that up, what they are saying in effect is that democracy and elections are a charade. They're like a, an entirely irrelevant uh, sort of process, kind of a ritual, which has no meaning as far as the real decisions that are taken. 
And yet when you had Conservative Cabinet Minister Michael Gove in the UK say, look, I think the people of this country have had enough of experts with organisations from acronyms saying that they know what is best and getting it constantly wrong. That, that statement by Michael Gove produced a huge backlash, didn't it? People said, well, you can't criticise the experts. Absolutely. And I think uh, when, when Gove said that in relation to the Brexit debate, when all the experts were predicting doom and gloom and Britain will be destroyed once Brexit kicks, kicks in, and he was actually right what he said, Unfortunately, Michael Gove is now hiding behind the experts in relation to the COVID development. And I think that's a tremendous sort of uh, problem for us that this has occurred and this has kicked in. So uh, even Michael Gove, who is better than most, finds it very difficult to uh, give up his addiction or the political class's addiction to expertise. Let's drill down a bit further into what this fear of democracy, fear of the demos actually is about and and you talk about uh, the fear uh, of demigods the, the the idea that people left to their own devices are, are not going you know they 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 could be swayed by powerful charismatic uh, demagogues and uh, this is a dangerous thing that they don't they lack the agency to be able to make sensible decisions for themselves and the, the, the prime example in recent years, at least as far as people who ha- share this fear, is, is, is Donald Trump. Uh, in last week, we saw the anniversary of the Capitol Hill riots in Washington. A great deal was made of this, that this was you know, people that were whipped up into a fervor by demagogue Donald Trump, uh, who was entirely to blame for this. This is a is this is this new this fear of demagogues is this a new aspect to this or has it always been lurking there? I think this is the latest version because at the end of the day, uh, what happened in the United States is that uh, whatever you think of Donald Trump, the fact that he got elected was perceived by the mainstream political and cultural establishment as a blow against their authority. And in many respects, the, you know, the uh, cultural elite who run universities and in educational institutions, uh, many of the leaders of, the, of corporations who are closely allied to them, the Democratic Party and, and, and sections of society who are linked to them, all regarded the election of Trump as almost like as if representing a rejection of their authority and their status. And I think that uh, because of that, they essentially panicked. Yeah. And they began to look upon the supporters of Trump as if they were the, you know, not unlike the, the brown shirts who marched, you know, sort of in Nazi Germany, you know, sort of and ha- helped Hitler get elected. And they developed these fantasies. But I think what's very important in this and something that's easily overlooked is that right from day one, when Trump got elected, these people called into question the legitimacy of his election. And they basically began to plot against him. And if you remember, there's all these claims made about the connection between Trump and Russia and various other underhanded dealings, all of which have turned into uh, fantasies. Everybody now can see that those claims, those investigations, were really an attempt to discredit the electoral process that led to his election. So it's not surprising then 
that a lot of people begin to react against it in, in similar terms, and they then develop their conspiracy theories. And they begin to, you know, they begin to get agitated. And you had this terrible event uh, a year ago on January the 16th, 6th in Washington. But basically what you've got is a situation where people feel that they've been, to some, to some extent, sidelined. They've been uh, kind of uh, the objects of these conspiracy theories. And they then react in a, in, a, in a way that is not very, very helpful. And I think what's really important to understand here is that once you begin to treat people as if they're idiots and they're stupid, uh, so it's not really worthy of trust, you do create a recipe for disaster. Because then, you know, sort of civility and, 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 and the democratic process itself is really put, you know, put under tremendous strain. Right? And for me, the big problem with this phobia against the people is, is that it, uh, in a sense, creates this uh, corrosive dynamic that can end up in all kinds of uh, unexpected places. Yeah, and, and it, it, it's a cumulative effect, it seems to me, Frank, that the more, the longer this goes on, the more suspicious people become of one another, the more uh, suspicious they become of governments, the more prone they become to um, well, what we call conspiracy theories, although I must say a lot of the things I once, once might have happily dismissed as conspiracy theories, um, I don't do so easily now because, you know, you look at the, the, the Wuhan lab or, or Hunter Biden's laptop, any of these things which were shut down by... Yeah. Which, which leads me on to this question of social media's role in this, which I think is another thing... Another relatively new development is is the sort of stranglehold that um, the educated elite have on social media and their ability to basically act as very brutal gatekeepers, deciding what comes in and what what does not. This and, and but they're they're doing it out of the best of intentions, aren't they? At least they'll tell you that they're doing it because they think it's dangerous to spread these lies or these rumours. It, it's dangerous to have false information on there about COVID because people make reckless decisions with their health. It's always, they've always got a high-minded excuse, it seems to me, for this. I think the important thing to remember is that before all of this kicks in, you've got this uh, destructive dynamic where, on the one hand, you have the politicization of public health which then means that public health just becomes, almost assumes this irrational, coercive character, which people then begin to react against because they can see it doesn't make any sense for many of these rules to, to kind of uh, exist. And then in reaction to that, unfortunately, what you have is people then develop their own uh, interpretation for why is it that they're locking down Melbourne? You know, why is it that they're locking down this particular part of Australia or another part of the world, but it simply doesn't seem to make sense to them. So then they develop these uh, kind of conspiratorial ideals about vaccinations, about big pharma, about the, the, non, the fact that we don't need to have vaccinations at all because they're bad for us. And you get this uh, process where you have two, uh, this kind of polarized public environment where both sides become almost like the mirror image of each other. And it becomes very difficult to then have a 
proper uh, sort of uh, civilized grown-up discussion about the challenges that we face. And on the social media, these processes become even more amplified than in everyday life because they get completely out of hand. But it seems to me that the very idea that the gatekeepers are doing a, a public service by censoring certain kinds of people, by shutting people down, and at the same time giving a privileged access to their own mates, actually makes the situation even worse because what it does, it creates this kind of totalitarian, you know, sort of social media uh, sort of landscape within which, you know, sort of people become intensely suspicious of everything that is going on. So we end up in a, in a, in a, in a kind of uh, cycle of mutual destructiveness as far as discussion and debate is, is possibly concerned. And, and it seems to me that uh, at the moment, the dictatorial influence that big tech is able to exercise on the social media is, is a matter of real concern. And, and I don't know if you, you realize this or this is happening in Australia, but the censorship and the gatekeeping they're managing to establish over social media has now spread to the publishing industry. Mm. So I know of many colleagues for example, who are, are not able to publish their books anymore, even though they're genuine scholars with a formidable record, track record of publishing beforehand, but whose books are being cancelled. Uh, uh, and I think that when you have this uh, kind of censorious you know, sort of uh, form of, 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 of rule, it does create a, a kind of uh, extremely worrying political development where the free flow of information becomes very difficult uh, to conduct. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Yeah, I mean, let's just take stock for a minute because all this, it's like the boiling frog, right? We don't notice it half the time, but, you know, I've, I have tried to get books on Kindle, only to find they're not available. Um, books on transgender uh, issues, for instance, if they go against the grain, you won't find them. Uh, you 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 have trouble even ordering them as hard hard you know hard copy books. Uh, this is extraordinary, Frank. I mean, <laughs> the I I never envisaged that I'd be living in a, a supposedly liberal. Western democracy in which uh, you know there's such censorship of books and it's dangerous it seems to me we've just we're in real trouble if we stop intelligent debate yeah I mean uh, yes a couple of days ago I was talking to a a young woman academic who's written this wonderful uh, manuscript that uh, challenges the very idea of social justice in the way that kind of um, woke political activists have talked about it. 
and it's really done very subtly. It's a, it's a genuine uh, work of academic research. And she's literally asking me, pleading, do I know anywhere that, could, that would be prepared to publish something like this? Because she's now uh, asked six, seven publishers, and they all rejected the, the, the book out of hand. And in a different era, not that long ago, her book would have been snapped up straight away and published. And when you've got that kind of uh, uh, censoring of certain points of view, you know that we're being deprived of ideas that are essential for a, for a, a proper political uh, sort of uh, culture and where, where debate and discussion can, can be had. And at the moment, we're doing that very much on the margins here and there. And the other thing that suffers from this is that I don't get to argue face to face. I don't get to argue with my political opponents hmm. because that kind of uh, culture of debate has gone. And, and, and all, all that we do at the moment is snipe at each other rather than conduct a, a grown up civilized discussion between different sides. And it becomes hard to you know, find a factual basis on which you can begin a discussion, right? You know, that basic facts are disputed. Um, I've seen this with the news media here, that, that the news media has taken a very censorious attitude over COVID and certain things they won't cover, as a result of which, if, you know, you end up having to go onto YouTube to find out what's been happening. And I'm talking about things like, say, the Melbourne you know the Melbourne demonstrations where there was a huge overreaction by police uh, that was quite horrendous I mean there's sort of pictures you would have seen from Soweto 30 years ago and looked on with horror but but uh, they they simply would did not appear on the six o'clock news the only place to see them was on YouTube we, we there's, this is, there's a problem I think when a society becomes uh, deep you know, divided, balkanized like this, if you like, over, over. you know, at least once upon a time we all could have watched Six Lock News and it wouldn't have been, you know, deep, but we would have recognized that it was basically the things that, that happened in Australia that were important. It is. I think uh, that's one of the legacies of, of COVID uh, in that it brought to surface, to the surface, trends that were already in existence for a very, very long time but you couldn't really recognize them because they weren't that visible, they weren't that palpable. But what it really shows us now is that you know, we live in a world where often uh, what appear to be fairly trivial issues, whether you should wear a mask or not wear a mask, or trivial issues as to whether or not, uh, for example, uh, COVID or, the, uh, or a particular variant of COVID uh, is what people say it is becomes this uh, make or break question you know it's, it's almost it's got an ideological significance it's like i'm a communist i'm an anti-communist mm. you know i'm a fascist i'm an anti-fascist it's got that kind of depth of outrage about it which it really doesn't deserve because these are actually the kind of questions that through common sense and through you know uh, civilized discussion can be easily clarified one way or the other, but we now cannot do that anymore, just simply because the polarization process has gone so far that we've created this very segregated uh, political scene where 
there aren't any points of contact anymore. You know, where do we meet mm. where we can discuss and debate in common? That doesn't happen anymore. What you've got instead is a situation where the idea of a political opponent has turned into the idea of an enemy. So we've got political enemies, not actually opponents, which is a, a very, very sad affair in a, a so-called democracy. Yeah, I've been puzzling about why something as simple as mask wearing can become such a highly political hot topic uh, in which you know there's you, you're not you, you don't you you know you, you, there's no room for polite disagreement you know you, you you're on one side or the other uh, but I thought your book helped me get closer to this because in the end you know on on the mask issue as with so much around COVID it's a question of how much you trust people to look after their own affairs or make their own health decisions or be responsible for making their own safety measures and how much you think, you know, they're just not capable of it. Therefore, we have to have a very paternalistic, top-down approach. So in the end, it seems to me it comes down to fairly crucial, fundamental, uh, philosophical differences. Would you agree with that? I, I do. I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I think in addition, there's one other point that we haven't touched on which is that one of the things that has happened is that um, the, uh, the process of technocratic governance, of, of relying on experts to insulate politicians from political pressure, has converged with identity politics. And what you got this is a situation where uh, experts and, and, and people involved in the domain of, of, of cultural politics have celebrated identity, uh, the politicization of identity. The two have kind of emerged and converged hand in hand. So basically, you can see this in relation to the mask issue. Because in the issue of the mask, you've got on the one hand, the health arguments, you know, that this is either good for your health or it's not good for your health. But also, you have a, an identity where people say, those people that are wearing masks are virtuous, says one side. We're very virtuous people because we take responsibility for everybody else. And then the other side, who are anti-mask, what they say is, you know, I'm not going to wear a mask because I'm a free person. My freedom is demonstrated mm. by the fact that I reject the idea of wearing a mask. So you have two silly positions essentially emerging, all of them undying a mask with a political and a cultural significance that it shouldn't have. And that's because public health and identity politics have merged together in this panic to the point at which it distorts the discussion altogether. It's peculiar, isn't it? It, it really is strange. But then we, you know, human beings have always been thus, right? We, you know, sim symbols or totems are more important than we we realise. Uh, yeah. The um, what haven't we covered, Frank? Uh, and we will talk about where all this goes and your your attempt at a redemptive ending in your book. Um, so, so let's do that. So, so Frank, it seems to me that the crucial... You, you, you wrote this book fairly early on in the COVID crisis. I guess at the time we hoped it wasn't early on. We thought it was fairly advanced, but it... it you know, you, you published, I think, at the end of 2020. So a year later... Um, the, the burning question is what happens next you know if as as we seem to be emerging from 
the worst of COVID-19. We're now moving into more the endemic stage rather than the pandemic. Uh, will governments, will, will, will the people in charge relinquish these powers and go back to normal democratic government? Or have we seen a permanent lurch towards a more authoritarian style of government? I don't know. I, I think this is a very, very difficult question because uh, one of the consequences of the pandemic is that it has really demobilized a large section of society. A lot of people have become very scared as a result of the pandemic. They've adapted to what I call a lockdown lifestyle. And they are very reluctant to come back to work properly. They're very reluctant to travel and, and resume normalcy. And then, so that problem is, is there, whilst another section of society is really dying to be free and, and wanting to get their freedom back. So you have these two different groups existing in different parts of the world, um, having a very different uh, orientation towards the future. Uh, and I think that's the first thing that it's very difficult to predict how this tension between these two sectors are going to be resolved. But I think what I really worry about more than anything is what uh, is often called uh, the new normal or the great reset. And a lot of the people that are uh, involved in the whole process of technocratic governance are already talking about a future world that is nothing like the old normal, it's a new normal, by, by which they mean a world where public health has got a far greater uh, political role than in the past, a world where we're increasingly living a life through social distancing, where social distancing becomes an everyday kind of phenomenon. A world where, for example, they suggest uh, that working from home is, is going to become more and more common, and isn't that really brilliant for us? All the while forgetting the importance of the social connections that we need, and we thrive to flourish in, in our place of work. And when you look at their new normal, it does sound to me to be quite a horrible mm. world. So uh, our, the first challenge from the point of view of democratic politics is to basically say we don't want the new normal. We want actually the old normal. And we want to decide for ourselves what our future looks like on the basis of our own needs rather than on the basis of modeling and on the basis of you know, these technocratic plans that they've been working on and drawing up, which are going to... Uh, have in, invariably very powerful anti-democratic consequences. So I see that as a main battleground in the future, which is really about the future. You know, what kind of future do we want? What do and I'm I'm kind of hoping that when people realize that there are these two alternatives, that uh, common sense will uh, have a powerful influence on on the electorate, and we will be looking to elect people who are able to represent our desires to get our life back rather than the technocratic impulse towards creating a new normal. This requires a faith not just in democracy but in, in your fellow human beings, though, doesn't it? The, the idea that, you know, as you write, I mean, democracy is basically good full stop. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a good way of ordering our affairs, the best way of ordering our affairs. But in order to sort of surrender to that, you you have to really trust uh, the other people in the you know who are lining up to 
sign, you know, mark their ballot papers, don't you? They're going to make sensible decisions. And, and that's what I think some people are finding hard, especially after Brexit, right? Or the Trump election or even Scott Morrison's election here in 2019. They just seem convinced that people make bad choices. How can we persuade them otherwise? I think the first thing is we have to start believing in ourselves, to believe in others. You have to believe in yourself as having the uh, strength and the uh, intellectual and moral capacity to deal with the world as it is. And at, at least we need a substantial group of individuals who are uh, genuinely committed to a humanistic you know, view of the world where you, you do believe that human beings on balance are reasonable and responsible individuals, which they are. I, I think by you know, all accounts, they are. And we somehow have to get that message across because I think the key thing that has been missing from the political discussion uh, for a very long time is the understanding that democracy is not just the means for arriving at good results. Democracy is something that's good in and of itself. Mm. Just through the medium of leading a democratic life, even if you make mistakes, along the way, just because you have been responsible along with your fellow citizens to make those decisions is a, is a process of education and learning that strengthens us individually and, and our communities. And, it, and once we get that idea of democracy across, that democracy is not something you do once every four years, every five years, but democracy is integral to your everyday life then we can begin to create a kind of culture, political culture, that will mean that uh, especially the younger generations will feel empowered by it, will feel that it is their democracy rather than somebody else's. Because democracy is not a gift that's given to us. It's something that we create in terms of our everyday life and, our, and to our community spirit. Yeah, we, we need faith in the fact that democracy does actually generally deliver better outcomes, that... that decisions made by small groups of people are prone to groupthink and error uh, and also self-interest and um, special interest groups and, and we've seen that during covid right but it doesn't mean it hasn't made any difference frank i mean you'd have to say that the you know the great plan to control covid19 has been an absolute failure and and as you'd expect it to be because it's an un, unknown virus it's a completely new situation for us um it it doesn't bow to government decrees so forth so but but none of that seems to have removed people's faith in the ability in the ability of government to fix things yeah and i think we have to learn one simple lesson which is that we mustn't let a virus determine our life you know, our life cannot be subordinated to the trajectory where that virus is going. We have to decide for ourselves, quite independent of that virus, what kind of life we want to lead. And once we've done that, then we can take sensible precautions. But we've we got to begin with our own needs, rather than simply continually react and respond to the, the latest outbreak of a virus. Because if we do that, then we're basically saying that, uh, you know, we're just giving up on our capacity to determine our own existence and our own future. Frank, if I could ask a navel-gazing question from an Australian point of view, we're, we're kind of acutely aware here that the rest of the world has looked upon the way COVID has been managed in 
in Australia with with some sort of mixture of shock and amusement. It seems to me that we 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 had such a heavy-handed approach. Um, you know, Melbourne being the most locked-down city in the world by a long way, even though the incidence of COVID there has been well, it's been high for Australian standards, but low by world standards. And and now the latest incident with Novak Djokovic being um, refused entry and then gets entry back for the courts. I mean, I don't know where that's going to be by the time we publish this podcast, but there's this panic here, which is quite extraordinary. I mean, what's the actual health danger Novak Djokovic presents? Not very much, I don't think. Do you have people been surprised by this because they regard Australia or should regard Australia as a sort of great, free, democratic country? Well, I think a lot of people have been surprised by the behaviour of Australia and and just the, the kind of uh, panic-like way in which COVID has been handled, which then leads to this uh, farce around Dojkovic, this, uh, you know, sort of visa, which, which is really something you expect from a, a tin-pot dictatorship that hasn't got a civil service and hasn't got any kind of uh, democratic process in play that they would react in this way. Uh, so this kind of farce that's being played out in Australia as we speak really uh, sort of captures, personifies all the problems that exist within our political system. Australia is a more extreme example. And you Australians have got to figure out why it is that uh, a country that was so much rooted in the aspiration for freedom has allowed itself to become so risk averse, so uh, uh, sort of prescriptive in the way that it conducts its affairs. And you know, how, how did it happen that a nation that used to have this pioneering spirit become almost its uh, cultural opposite in a very, very short period of time? Because no matter what happens after COVID, that kind of risk over culture is still there, embedded in your institutions, which uh, does pose a very important challenge for free-thinking Australians of how you deal with this, how you overcome it, how you get back that uh, cultural political legacy that made Australia such a desirable place for people to come to. Well, it still is a desirable place in many ways, Frank, and I hope we can welcome you back. Look, uh, uh, you're, you're very prolific. You're a prolific writer, um, and we are always seem to be about one book behind the one you've published. Uh, as I said, this book was published um, almost a year ago, I think now. What what's what what have you been working on since, and where where are your investigations leading? Well, I've written a book called "A uh, Hundred Years of Identity Crisis: The Cultural War Over Socialization," which attempts to uh, explore and the history of how the culture wars that we all know so well now has come into being, and and looks at why why it is that uh, uh, the main site of 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 these culture wars have become uh, sort of the institutions of culture and education and language and, and, and what's at stake there. So that came out last year. And at the moment, I'm, I'm working on a book which will take a few years to write, I think. And that's basically to understand how the ruling classes, the, the establishment in different Western societies, how they rule, what their ideas are, what motivates them what their ideology is as a way of trying to understand 
how the world works today, but that's going to take me about another 18 months to complete. So uh, you're going to be spared of the need to read any of my works for a while. After that's this. good. We've got a period to catch up. I look forward to that one, Frank. That sounds like a really worthwhile uh, project. So once again, thank you for joining us on Water Cooler. Thank you for your um, curious mind and your ability to unravel some of these things and explain them uh, in a way that helps us make sense of the modern world post-COVID. Uh, thanks very much, Frank. Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to talk to you. been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more of course and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater and thank you for listening. Music